But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. John chapter 11, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book this morning, we come to John 11 uh, verse uh, 45, and my goal this morning is to go from verse 45 through verse uh, 57. Uh, that brings us to the end of the of uh, John chapter 11. And the title of the message is "The Fallout from the Miracle." The fallout from the uh, miracle. Last week we studied the story of Jesus raising of Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus, we learn, had been dead for four days. That's just uh, unthinkable, the magnitude of the miracle that Jesus performed on this occasion in John 11. This miracle of Jesus of raising Lazarus is the seventh miracle that John records in his gospel And arguably, it is the greatest miracle of Jesus' public ministry. And it happened during a very tense moment right at the doorstep of his enemies in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see this morning is that the fallout from this miracle that Jesus does uh, will be huge and it will be enduring. This is a very provocative miracle that Jesus performs, uh, and it sets in motion a chain of consequences that continues to this very day. We today are still living in the fallout of Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. So to appreciate what happens in our passage today, we need to realize that Jesus' raising of Lazarus did not happen in a vacuum It was not just some random miracle. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, we need to remember that the Jews had picked up stones to kill him. And we saw this back in chapter 10, verse 33. And it just so happens that Lazarus lived in a little town just two short miles from the city of Jerusalem, basically a little suburb of Jerusalem which means that for Jesus to visit Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead was to place himself in mortal danger. We already saw foreshadowings of this in the verses of John 11 that we studied last uh, Sunday. You will recall from last week that Jesus' disciples protested when Jesus stated his intentions to travel to Judea, where Bethany was. Look at John 11, verse 8, where it says, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? When Jesus insisted that they go into Judea, to Bethany, we read in verse 16 that Thomas said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. In the mind of Thomas, for Jesus to go to Bethany was to walk right into his own death. 
And Thomas was ready to die right alongside of Jesus. There's one more foreshadowing in John 11 that we should make note of. When Jesus first heard that Lazarus was sick, he said to his disciples in John 11, verse 4, look at the verse, where he said to them, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And we read that and ask the question, well, how will the Son of God be glorified by this situation with Lazarus? Will it be the glory of everyone seeing Jesus raise a dead person to life? Certainly. But we would also have to say that this glorifying of the Son also includes the cross and the resurrection that follows the cross. And we know this because in the very next chapter, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, go to John chapter 12, verse 23, where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then if you read on, he immediately begins speaking about how unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. In other words, when Jesus speaks of himself being glorified, he is speaking about his looming death upon the cross. Which means then that when Jesus says in John 11 verse 4, that Lazarus' sickness is happening so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Part of what Jesus is saying is that Lazarus' sickness will set in motion a chain of events that will result in Jesus' own death upon the cross, followed by all the glorious good that follows the cross. The commentator William Barclay says that in speaking the way that Jesus does in John eleven four, and I quote, Jesus was showing that he knew perfectly well that to go to Bethany and to cure Lazarus was to take a step which would end in the cross, as indeed it did. With open eyes, Jesus knew the cost of helping his friend. And he was well prepared to pay it, unquote. And we will see in our passage today how true those words really are. We saw last week how Jesus comes to Bethany after Lazarus' death, and Jesus does a handful of things. First, he weeps with those who are weeping. Second, we saw how Jesus was troubled and deeply moved, and then Third, we saw how Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And we saw how Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, came forth from the tomb, wrapped in his grave clothes, at which point Jesus instructed those who were there to unbind him and to let him go. Last week, we focused on the miracle that Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. Today, we will pick up in verse 45 and follow John, 
John's lead and put all of our focus on the fallout from the miracle, the chain of consequences set in motion by this miracle that will ultimately result in Jesus' suffering and death during the Passover week and all the good that has flowed from that. So the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe six results, as you see on your notes, emerging from Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. Six results. And the first of these results is a good one, and that is that many of the Jews who were present believe in Jesus. Many of the Jews who were present on this occasion of this miracle believe in Jesus. Observe what the text says in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, in other words, who had followed Mary when she ran to Jesus back in verse 31, and they were weeping with her in verse 33. The text says, many of the Jews who came to Mary and they saw what he had done, they believed in him. This is a good thing that results from Jesus' miracle. And notice who these people are who are believing in him. John speaks of them as many of the Jews who came to Mary. As we've been pointing out throughout our study of this gospel, when the apostle John speaks of the Jews in his gospel, he is usually speaking of the Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem and those who are closely affiliated with them and a part of their camp. So these Jews saw what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead, and they are persuaded to believe in him as the Messiah. These Jews were no doubt aware that Jesus had healed a man born blind back in chapter 9. They had heard Jesus teaching on a handful of occasions in the Jerusalem temple. They witnessed some of his confrontations with the religious leaders. In fact, some of these Jews here on this occasion may have been among the very men who picked up stones to stone Jesus in John 8. And then again in John 10, some of them may have been the very ones Jesus was pleading with on earlier occasions, to believe in him and to be saved. Either way, now comes their moment. They witness this miracle of Jesus and they believe in him. They come to believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, believing all that Jesus has been saying about himself, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the door of salvation, that he is the light of the world and the great I am that he has been claiming to be during his earlier trips to Jerusalem. And they come to believe that Jesus is the one through whom they must be saved and delivered from their sins. They obviously know how the religious leaders in Jerusalem despise Jesus and want him arrested, but they are now siding with Jesus And believing in Jesus instead of siding with their colleagues in Jerusalem who hate Jesus. 
So this is a good thing for these men to choose sides like this and to believe in Jesus. But as you can imagine, their faith is guaranteed to be highly provocative to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, which brings us to the second result emerging from Jesus raising of Lazarus from the dead. Result number two, we can word it this way. The religious leaders fear how Jesus' miracle will bring the loss of their place and nation. The religious leaders fear how Jesus' miracle will bring the loss of their place and nation. Observe what John says in verse 46. But some of them, in other words, some of the Jews who were present on this occasion, went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. The Pharisees were highly esteemed in Israel. They had a minority voice on the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And it is these Pharisees whom these Jews report to in order to inform them Look at the text about the things which Jesus had done. And what Jesus had done was essentially two things. Number one, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And number two, he had persuaded many of the Jews who were present to believe in him. Given the fact that John seems to be contrasting these men doing the reporting with those who had believed in Jesus, we can infer that their motives for reporting what happened to the Pharisees were malicious against Jesus. And they want the Pharisees to know what has happened, figuring that the Pharisees will want to take decisive action to deal with the fallout from what Jesus has done. Well, once the Pharisees hear the news of this miracle, they know that they cannot take judicial action on their own against Jesus by themselves. So they call for a gathering of the whole Sanhedrin. Look at verse 47. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. The Greek word that is translated council here in verse 47 is the Greek word we get our English word Sanhedrin from. The word Sanhedrin is basically a transliteration of this Greek word translated council here, which speaks of a formal session of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme council in Israel, the supreme court of Israel the highest ranking legislative and judicial body in Israel. This council was comprised of 70 members from among the family of the high priest and from among the Sadducees and some from among the Pharisees. These men were the religious elite of Israel and the 71st person in attendance at this meeting would be the chief priest himself who would preside over the meetings. And as these members of the Sanhedrin meet together on this occasion, observe the question that they're asking in verse 47, saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Jesus 
performed some unnamed miracles in Jerusalem in John chapter 2. In John 5, he healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. And he gave sight to a man born blind in John 9. These miracles happened in Jerusalem. And now he's raised a man from the dead in John 11, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And these men on this council are now looking at each other saying, what are we doing? That's actually a great question. Because the truth is they weren't doing anything like what Jesus was doing. No one can. But from a practical standpoint, their question is basically, what are we doing letting this man continue to operate freely and keep doing miracles like this? They are rebuking themselves for their passivity in the face of Jesus' actions, fretting over the fact that they have not yet arrested him or succeeded in doing away with him sooner. And notice their line of reasoning in verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice the logic of their concern. If they let Jesus continue to do miracles like this, first of all, all men will believe in him. And what is left unstated, but is clearly implied, is that if everyone starts believing in Jesus as the Messiah King, then that will surely set fire to everyone's messianic expectations and set off an uprising that would bring down the full weight of Rome upon their heads. Rome was known to squash rebellions with ruthless efficiency, even to the point of lining the roads with the crucified bodies of rebels and destroying their cities and driving the people from their lands. And the religious leaders know the power and the brutality of Rome, and they fear this outcome. And notice how they state their fear in verse 48. If everyone is going to start believing in Jesus, then here's the inevitable conclusion. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice what they're concerned about the Romans taking away. First of all, they're concerned about the Romans taking away our place, which either refers to the city of Jerusalem or to the Jerusalem temple, or it could refer to their position as religious leaders over the Jewish people a position that they were accustomed to using for their own personal advantage. And the truth is that these three things rise and fall together, right? These religious leaders are afraid of losing the temple. They're afraid of losing their city, which both served as a hub of their power. And they're afraid of losing their positions of privilege and power over the people of Israel. I think all of those things are included 
when they voice their fear of losing their place. And they're also concerned about losing what they call our nation at the hand of the Romans. They're afraid of losing their country. When you stop to think about it, guys, you realize that the concern that they are expressing here really doesn't make a lot of sense. Think about it. Their concern is that if everyone starts believing in a man who is so powerful that he can raise a dead man who had been dead for four days, then that will result in the Romans taking away their place and their nation. It doesn't seem to occur to them that if Jesus can raise a man who had been dead for four days, he can probably handle the Romans too, right? So this is not a rational fear on their part, but it is the fear that they are giving expression to, their fear of losing their place and nation. As several writers have said in recent years, if you want to know what your idols are, you will find them at the bottom of your anxieties. And we see that here in this passage. The idols of these religious leaders are what they call our place and our nation. In fact, notice their use of the pronoun our, as if the temple and the nation were theirs to begin with. The sad irony is that these men would rather have their place and their nation than have Jesus. And in the chapters to come, they're going to kill Jesus in order to maintain hold of these things that they are afraid to lose. Yet 40 years later, they will all lose their place and their nation in 70 AD at the hand of the Romans anyway. Not because they believed in Jesus, but because they rejected him. So learn this lesson well, guys. If you reject Jesus because you are afraid to lose something, you're eventually going to lose that thing that you cherish anyway, either in this life or in the life to come. But if you surrender your life to Jesus and you believe in him, you will never lose him. And you will be surprised at all the good things of this earth that he will put into your hands in the process. And in the end, you will receive so much from him that no matter what sacrifices you made for him, you will say at the end of your life, and especially in eternity, I sacrificed nothing for him. Now, the idols of these men was their place and their nation. Your own idols may be different than the idols of these religious leaders. How would you fill in the following blanks? If I let Jesus operate freely in my life, I will lose blank. And for that reason, I cannot let him operate freely in my life. What would you put 
in that blank? What is that idol that you value more than Jesus? Whatever that idol is, it's nothing compared to Jesus. And whatever that idol does for you is a cheap imitation of what Jesus can offer to you. Looking at what these men say in verse 48, we can see these religious leaders are giving voice to quite a patriotic line of reasoning. They're afraid of losing their country. If Jesus keeps doing miracles like this, everyone's going to believe in him and cause the Romans to come and take away their country, their place, and their nation. And this line of thinking is causing these men to panic. Rather than believing in Jesus in response to this miracle and entrusting their place and their nation over to him, these men are fretting over how they're possibly going to lose their place and their nation. And their only thought is that somehow, some way, Jesus must be stopped in order to save their place and their nation from the Romans. They realize that something has to happen to bring a stop to the inevitable chain of events that they are afraid of. And it turns out that there is someone in the room who knows what that thing might be, which brings us to the third result that emerges from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Number three, result number three, Caiaphas predicts Jesus will die to preserve their nation. Caiaphas predicts that Jesus will die to preserve their nation. Observe what happens beginning in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas, if you're interested, was high priest in Israel from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. John describes him as the man who was the high priest that year. In other words, that fateful year. Caiaphas sees how frantic and panicky his colleagues in the Sanhedrin are, yet he's not feeling panicky at all. In response to their panic, he says to them in verse 49, you know nothing at all. What an endearing way to speak to one's colleagues, right? If you want to win friends and influence people, and I know you do, preface anything you have to say to people with the words, you know nothing at all. And then you will have them listening, no doubt, with appreciation to whatever it is that you have to say next. This is how Caiaphas rudely begins with his colleagues. And then he says, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. On one level, these are amazing words from the mouth of the wicked and conniving 
Caiaphas. He speaks these words as a matter of political expediency, but we read the words that he has spoken and we agree with them, do we not, when it comes to the matter of salvation? For indeed, it is true that it is expedient that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish under God's wrath, right? So we're left thinking, where did these words that Caiaphas is speaking come from? Well, John answers that question in verse 51 saying, now he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. John wants us to know that Caiaphas is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, and that he is unwittingly prophesying a message from God that Jesus is going to die for the nation which is something that Jesus is going to actually do. But John also wants us to know that Caiaphas' words do not even begin to capture the full truth of what it is that Jesus is going to do. Yes, Jesus will die for the nation of Israel, but he will not die for the nation of Israel only. Look at verse 52. But, John tells us, in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Through his death, John is telling us Jesus will draw all his sheep to himself and make them children of God. He will gather the souls from near and from far and make them into one family, one people through his death. Those who will become God's children through Christ will not be from the nation of Israel alone, but from all the different ethnicities and cultures and nations scattered around the world. And one day, people of every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne of God, uniting their voices in giving praise to the Lamb as the single people of God, gathered and harvested from around the world. What we see in verse 52 is the Apostle John speaking to us at some point after 90 A.D., after the gospel has now spread throughout the Roman world to Jews and to Gentiles and barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free. And John is letting us know that this was the plan of God all along, that the family of God be comprised of people from all the nations of the world. As you read through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see that this is the heart of God for all the peoples of the world to gather those who are scattered through faith in Jesus Christ to make them into one people. Despite all of their biological and ethnic 
and cultural differences. Nowadays, there are people who speak about Christianity as if it is something that is culturally narrow and distinctively Western. But that is so not true. In fact, history shows that Christianity is, in fact, the broadest of all of the world's faiths. As the writer Christopher Watkins says, and I quote, Christianity was born in the Middle East, captured the mind and heart of Europe, spread to the Americas, and is now on the decline in the West, but rapidly growing in the Far East, Latin America, China, and much of Africa. He goes on to say, there are now six times more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than there are in all of the United States. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana alone than in the United States and Scotland combined. He goes on to say, the irony is that the diversity preached in the name of secular humanism would not be accepted in most of the great cultures of the world today, whereas Christianity wraps its loving arms of cultural hospitality right around the globe today. Showing that Christianity is far more diverse and global than the hopelessly Western religion of secular humanism will ever be. And we have this feature of Christianity indicated by John's words here in verse 52 when he tells us that through the death of Christ, God intends to gather together into one the children of God who are right now scattered abroad. At the Tower of Babel, the nations were scattered, but Jesus Christ will die on the cross and be raised and will gather into one flock those scattered peoples whom God will make into his children. And you and I get to participate in this mission, right? As we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to others in this distant land where we live and as we support missionaries who are doing the same work wherever God has sent them to proclaim the news of salvation through Jesus. When we read what happens in verse 50 of our text, we realize Actually, what a remarkable thing it is that God would put his very words on the lips of wicked Caiaphas in verse 50 and cause Caiaphas unwittingly to speak prophetically. Caiaphas was a wicked man who spoke these words in a cold, calculating way regarding what will need to happen And he never imagined how true his words would be on a far grander scale than anything he could have fathomed. But God is inserting himself into this moment, into this council to demonstrate that his sovereignty is at work even through the wickedness of these men. They are coming up with their own plan to get rid of Jesus, but in the process they are acting in perfect accordance with the sovereign plan of God. 
Well, Caiaphas has spoken here, and now it's time for the Sanhedrin members to respond, and respond they do in the most wicked way possible. This brings us to the fourth result emerging from Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. Number four, the Sanhedrin begins planning to kill Jesus, causing Jesus to go elsewhere. The Sanhedrin begins planning to kill Jesus, causing him to go elsewhere. Observe what happens in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him, to murder him. This is now the official decision of the Sanhedrin. The die has been cast. They have rendered their decision to kill Jesus. And now all they need to do is to capture him so that they can carry out their decision. And based on what they and Caiaphas have said, they have their strategy figured out. They will cast their Jesus problem as a Roman problem and seek to eliminate Jesus in order to protect the rest of the Jewish nation from the wrath of Rome. Yes, it will be unfortunate for Jesus to have to die, but it is better that one man die than that the whole nation perish at the hands of the Romans. And so at least to their wicked way of thinking, viewing the matter in this way, viewing the Jesus problem in this way, Jesus' death would clearly be the lesser of two evils. And so now their official plan is to kill Jesus somehow, some way. You can write down some of these references in John five eighteen. We read the words, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. In John seven thirty one, we are told that they were seeking to seize him. In John eight fifty nine, we are told that they picked up stones to throw at him. In John 10, 31, we read the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In John 10, 39, we read the words, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. And now here in John eleven fifty three, we read the words, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Working hard at scheming up a plan whereby they can kill him. And what seems to be different this time is that this is now an official decision of the Supreme Council of Israel, an official decision of the Sanhedrin. And because of their decision, observe what Jesus does in verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews but went away from there to the country near the wilderness and to a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus does not do this, obviously, because he's afraid of the Jews or afraid to die. He withdraws because his hour has not yet come. It will come in a matter of maybe a couple months or several weeks from this moment. We honestly 
don't know where the city of Ephraim was exactly that Jesus is resorting to here. Some commentators suggest this was a city which lay about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. But wherever this city was, John tells us that it was near the wilderness and it provided sufficient privacy for Jesus to spend time with his disciples and no doubt to prepare them for what lies ahead. Wherever this city is located, Jesus will stay with his disciples here for a few to several weeks until Passover arrives, which brings us to the fifth result that emerges from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Number five, as Passover approaches, everyone is focused on Jesus. As Passover approaches, everyone is focused on Jesus. Observe what happens in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. The Passover being spoken of here is the Passover of Jesus' crucifixion. And John alerts us to the fact that it was common for Jews to arrive prior to the Passover in order to go through the purification rituals and no doubt to be a part of the festivities of the week leading up to the Passover celebration. And observe in verse 59 what the mindset of these hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are while they're ascending to Jerusalem and then coming into the temple. Verse 56, so they were seeking for Jesus. Oh, how the religious leaders must have hated this. This was their moment in the sun, their moment to shine. And yet these pilgrims are coming from around Israel and beyond Israel, and they're coming into the temple. And who are they looking for? They were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? This had to have really bothered the religious leaders to observe everyone's fixation on Jesus. It seems that word of Jesus' raising of Lazarus has spread, resulting in Jesus being the focus of everyone's attention, leaving all these pilgrims looking for him and asking about him. And among the questions that they are asking each other is, look at their question, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Their question actually assumes a negative answer, which means that the average Jew arriving at the Passover here is assuming that there's no way, no way in the world that Jesus would dare to show up for this Passover. Why do they make this assumption? Because of what we learn in verse 57. Now, the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, Jesus, was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. We all know how the week of Passover is going to go. 
It's called the Passion Week because it is the week of the Lord's suffering and crucifixion. This means, guys, that at this point of the Gospel of John, as we come to the end of John chapter 11, we are right now on the front end of this most momentous week in the history of the world. A week upon which our salvation hangs. And John wants us to know that the primary, from a human standpoint, the primary event that set up the circumstances that we find being described for us right now is Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead serves as the final straw. And it's the catalyst that seals Jesus' fate. When this Passover week is finished, Jesus will lie dead and buried in a tomb. And then he will be raised and ascended to God's right hand and then send his Holy Spirit and bring salvation to people scattered around the world, making them into one family through faith in him. Which means then that the fallout from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead continues down to this very day in ever expanding ripples that has reached us even here in America and will not stop until it has touched every people group on earth. So as we close, go back in your mind to the moment when Jesus decided to go to Bethany to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead and realize that if Jesus wanted to avoid being crucified for our sins and for our salvation, if he wanted to avoid the cost of being the savior of the scattered peoples of the earth, he would have left Lazarus in the tomb. But instead, he sets his face like a flint and walks toward Bethany and to the inevitable fate that would follow, which adds a whole other layer of rationale for why Jesus wept and why he was troubled and why he was deeply moved at the tomb of Lazarus. He felt and showed all of these emotions, at least in part, because he knew how consequential this moment would prove to be for himself and how much all of our destinies hung in the balance. But he embraced his fate and went to Bethany, and he raised Lazarus. And as the commentator D.A. Carson says, and I quote, in transparent irony, it is Jesus' quest to bring his dead friend back to life that precipitates his own execution. Being moved by love for Lazarus, and being moved by love for us, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, knowing 
the chain of events that this miracle would set in motion, resulting in Jesus' death for Lazarus' sins, Mary and Martha's sins, and for our sins as well. How does it impact you to hear that and to ponder that? That Jesus was willing to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing that it would bring about his own dying on the cross for your salvation. It definitely shows you what an act of bravery it was for Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, but it also shows you the depth of his love for you, right? When people saw Jesus weeping in Bethany at the tomb of Lazarus, they exclaimed, behold, how he loved Lazarus. But they didn't realize the half of it. Timothy Keller suggests that we should see what Jesus did and also say, behold, how he loved us. Because in raising Lazarus, Christ showed his own willingness to bring about his own death for our salvation so that God could make us his children and bring us into his family of saved ones. So how do you respond to the events of John 11? How do you respond to Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead? Will you be grateful and believe in him as we see some people doing in our text today? Or will you view Jesus as a threat to some precious idol in your life and seek to eliminate him from your life and from your consciousness? If you have never believed in Jesus and surrendered your life to his love, I urge you to believe in him today, in this moment. Call upon his name and be saved and receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus. Whatever idols might be holding you back, let those idols go. To steal C.S. Lewis's terminology, stop making mud pies in the slums when you could be enjoying a holiday at sea with Jesus. And realize that if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead after having been dead for four days, then no matter what your failures are, no matter the depth of your brokenness, you are not too far gone for Jesus. And there is no area of your life that is too far gone for him to heal and transform and resurrect if you are willing to walk the path of repentance and look to Jesus to be your Savior. On one final note, it is just so sobering to observe in our passage today that Jesus can literally raise a man from the dead after four days, and there are still people who can witness such an astounding miracle and still not believe in Jesus. Clearly, their problem was not a lack of evidence, 
but a hatred of the truth that left their hearts hardened against Jesus in the face of overwhelming evidence. And they are left suppressing the truth about Christ so that they could continue to hold on to their precious idols. Leon Morris says, and I quote, it has always been the case that those whose minds are made up to oppose what Christ stands for will not be convinced by any amount of evidence, unquote. Let us remember this fact as we engage with the lost in our world today. There will be some whose hearts God is touching, who will be helped to faith by the evidence that we put before them and point them to, but there will be others who will never be persuaded, no matter the evidence that we might put before them. They will say that they have an intellectual problem with Christianity, but the truth is that they are truth suppressors who hate the truth. Just like the members of the Sanhedrin are in our passage today. Let's be grieved by this, but let's not be shocked by this. And let's not pat ourselves on the back for being smarter than they are, right? Let's thank God that he touched our hearts and enabled us to love the truth and to believe in Christ. For apart from such a miracle of God in us, we would all be just as lost just as blind as these members of the Sanhedrin are, right? So let's be humble and let's show compassion to those whom we engage with who are right now deceived. Let's love them and exhibit the heart of Christ toward them and let's speak the truth of Christ to them and pray that God might touch their hearts and open their eyes just like he did for us. Okay, let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord, this is such a strategic text that we've looked at today upon which our fates, eternal fates swing. And as Jesus hears the news about Lazarus and with his intimacy with you, Father, he knows, he knows what's up. And that this is you, Father, beckoning him to the doorstep of Jerusalem to do what will prove to be a very provocative miracle in an already tense situation, which will set in motion ultimately his death. And Jesus, knowing all of that, goes anyway out of love for Lazarus and out of love for us. And we cannot begin to express our loving appreciation to the Lord Jesus for his obedience to you, Father, for his willingness to embrace the fate awaiting him, knowing that 
it will yield an outcome of salvation and joy and life for so many. And if you, Lord Jesus, were willing to do what we see you did for the reasons you did them in John 11, there is no links that you will not be willing to go to save us to the uttermost. You are an amazing Savior who has brought us an amazing salvation. And we ask, Lord, that you would remove the scales from our eyes and enable us to see you and to see your goodness, the superabundance of your heart like we've never seen it before. And that seeing your beauty, your grace, your abundance, that we would then see our idols for the pathetic things that they are. And that we would give ourselves wholly over to you and let you have your way with us. And then use us, Lord, to point others to you that they too might experience this same salvation that we are experiencing at your hand. We ask all of these things with gratefulness in our hearts in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.